Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom, and Hanukkah Sameach. Hanukkah is, to the rest of the world, considered the Jewish festival. Passover can come and go, and, and none of my uh, non-Jewish or Messianic friends will say a word. The High Holy Days can come and go, and the only thing that I know is there were a couple days I wasn't at work for some reason. But Hanukkah, they know it's coming, or they start saying Happy Hanukkah way too early or way too late, depending on the year, because they don't realize it's on the lunar calendar and not on the Gregorian. And Hanukkah has some of the most fun traditions. We have gambling games, <laughs> we call it dreidel, but you're definitely not gambling for chocolate. We get fried food, we light candles. This is one of the holidays where we sing the Hallel. There is a lot of fun around Hanukkah. And that is one of the most perplexing things in our history on why Hanukkah is so much fun because when you actually do an honest reading of the books of Maccabees, why do we have a custom where we eat donuts? Now, I'm not arguing with that because you can ask my wife, what is one of my uh, weaknesses when it comes to foods? It's not cake, it's not pie, it's not cookies, it's not anything else. I will eat a dozen donuts with no shame. <laughs> but why is that a tradition around Hanukkah? Because Hanukkah, the story is traumatic. And if you just do a reading of the books of Maccabees, especially one and two, you walk away with a feeling that you just read a book about the Holocaust, only it was about 2,000 years prior. And from that, we light candles and play dreidel and have donuts. The story of Hanukkah is a trauma in the Jewish soul if you don't look at it from the right perspective. And trauma can absolutely impact the things that we do. In fact, the sages discuss that the reason we don't have a lot of stories about Isaac is because he was so wounded from the Akedah, from the binding, that he couldn't really do anything meaningful after that. And so his son Jacob picked it up from there. And they reason that by there's only one real story we have that just includes Isaac, and it's a story about some wells. We have lots of stories about Abraham, lots of stories about Jacob, but not much about Isaac. Wounds can change the things you do and the way you live your life. And Hanukkah, just the reading of it, is traumatic because we had the Jewish people being Hellenized at threat of death, repeatedly. Antiochus decided that everyone would become Greek or face death, that you were not allowed to be Jewish. In fact, the punishments from Antiochus for obeying God's Torah were severe, and his actions some of the most repulsive in all of history. This is on the overhead. The house of God, the temple, was renamed the Temple of Olympian Zeus. The Jewish people were forced to participate in pagan rituals, worshiping the Greek gods, including but lim not limited to sacrificing unclean animals on the altar in Jerusalem. Any Jew who would not forsake God and follow Greek custom was to be put to death. Women would circumcise their little boys and have their babies hung around their necks and killed before they were. Observing the Sabbath was outlawed. Some people tried to do it privately in a temple hidden away and the entire cave was, uh, excuse me, they tried to do it in the cave and they were burned alive. I get the prettiest delivery girl. The message that Antiochus wanted to send to the Jewish people in his day is one that we have heard echoed throughout history. And that is, get rid of the Torah and do things the world's way. Why are you trying to obey God? But Yeshua says, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Hanukkah represents a significant trauma, one of the worst ones that is recorded. 
is Hannah and her seven sons. Now, if there's any kids left in the room, normally I would give a warning. My father read this to me when I was six or seven years old, which you might question uh, his judgment in doing that because this is a very graphic story, which I will only summarize here. But this, the entire story is in 2 Maccabees 7, and in the book, they say at the end of it, we're going to stop talking about this now. It's happened that seven brothers and their mother, who most of the sages will name Hannah, were arrested and were being compelled by the king under torture with whips and cords to partake of unlawful swine's flesh. So they're being told, eat pork, showing your submission to Antiochus and Greek culture, or die. The following happened in full display in front of everyone, all of the other sons and their mother. Son number one said, what do you intend to ask and learn from us? For we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our fathers. Antiochus had his tongue cut out. He had him scalped. He cut off his hands and feet and he cooked him alive in pans while the rest watched. Son number two was brought up. He was immediately scalped by having his hair torn off of his head and his skin ripped off with it. Upon refusing to eat pork, they did everything done to him that they did to the first. And with his last breath, he cried out, you accursed wretch, you dismissed us from the present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. Son number three, when Antiochus' attention turned to him, he immediately put out his tongue. He stuck his tongue out at the king. And he held his hands out for them, saying, I got these from heaven. And because of his laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. He was killed in the same manner as the two before. Son number four was tortured in the same way in his dying breath. He said to Antiochus, one cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. Sons number five and six were similarly tortured and killed. Son number seven, some of the rabbis and sages write, was a child. And Antiochus wanted to appeal to him, so he offered him wealth. If you will acquiesce, I will give you wealth and riches. People will be jealous of you. Hannah talked to her son and she talked to him in Hebrew initially so not everyone there could understand my son have pity on me I carried you nine months in my womb and nursed you for three years and have reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you I beseech you my child to look to heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed because he spoke it. Thus also mankind comes into being from God's word. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that in God's mercy, I may get you back again with your brothers. And that echoes the words of the Messiah. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In the story, son number seven essentially cuts his mother off and says, let's get on with it. I'm summarizing. When it was clear the seventh and final son, nearly a child, would not obey, Antiochus ordered him tortured worse than the other six. Before he died, the, the rabbis will uh, extrapolate different things and there's different stories that could pass down and whether it's true or not. His mother told him, tell your ancestor Abraham when you see him, you bound only one son upon an altar, I bound seven. Chilling. And it echoes Messiah's words, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Hanukkah is an enormous trauma in the Jewish consciousness and soul. We waged a war at tremendous cost eventually, and against all odds, the Greeks were defeated and the temple was cleansed. But after so much suffering and atrocities, again, I'll pose the question, how do we get 
latkes and donuts and lighting candles and gambling over chocolate from this. This is not in the account of the Maccabees. If you read in the Apocrypha, you will nowhere find anything about this. For that, we have to turn to the tradition in the Talmud in Tractate Shabbat. The Gemara asks, what is Hanukkah and why are these lights kindled on Hanukkah? The Gemara answers, the sages taught in, the, in Megillat Ta'anit on the 25th day of Kislev, the days of Hanukkah are eight. One may not eulogize on them and one may not fast on them. What is the reason? When the Greeks entered the sanctuary, they defiled all the oils that were in the sanctuary by touching them. They did a little more than that, but they're being delicate. And when the Hasmonean monarchy overcame them and emerged victorious over them, they searched and found only one cruise of oil that was placed with the seal of the high priest, undisturbed by the Greeks. And there was sufficient oil there to light the candle of Aram for only one day. A miracle occurred and they lit it for eight days. The next year, the sages instituted those days and made them holidays with recitation of Hallel and special thanksgiving and prayer and blessing. And still yet, they didn't mention donuts. <laughs> we eat fried foods in memory of the oil. We light the lights in memory of the menorah that was in the temple and that's where we get the Hanukkah. But we still have an enormous trauma here. So how do we have such a traumatic event, a war that costs hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives, torture beyond measure, inhumane, and we have this. The trauma of losing a child is difficult to compare to anything else. The story of Hanukkah is fraught with the death of children and infants, forced idolatry, debauchery, and the desecration of God's house, the temple. Again, why do we light candles and eat greasy food? Why wasn't Hanukkah made into more so a memorial day of sorts? Well, we already have Tishbav, but why didn't we do that? Why do we say special prayers and sing Hallel? How does oil lasting for eight days outdo the war? Because these things don't seem to weigh evenly. If you ask someone, big miracle, little miracle, and you said, 10,000 foot soldiers who were soldiers, they were not trained for war, went up against a Greek army of well over 10,000 horsemen alone, and then say 30,000 chariots and innumerable foot soldiers, too many to count, that's a miracle. Oil lasted for eight days. Which of these is a bigger miracle? So why do we celebrate oil lasting for eight days, but we don't have a lot of traditions around the war. I'll propose you that we are remembering it not through a lens of trauma. Just as you remember slavery in Egypt through the lens of God's salvation in the Exodus annually in the Passover Seder, and for an entire week in unleavened bread, such a traumatic event in Jewish history must not be viewed through a lens of trauma. That is because when you view something through a lens of trauma, when you approach life through your wounds, you're not dealing with it as God wants you to see it. It leads to disaster in your life. And an entire culture cannot do that. If you want to see a reason why, simply take a look at the veteran community. Active duty military encounters traumatic circumstances at a rate twice that of civilian population. As a result, veterans have a suicide rate that is twice their civilian counterparts. They are more likely to use drugs and alcohol, either socially or heavily. Veterans are more likely to get divorced and more likely to suffer from mental illness. If you want to see what it looks like when wounds are not dealt with, simply start there and you quickly see why we do not celebrate Hanukkah talking about how bad we had it in a war and subjugation under Antiochus. We don't approach it through that lens. Just like God's blessing on Joseph, and we read it just earlier, caused him to forget the bad things that had happened to him. He was not approaching his life through a lens of my brother stabbed me in the back and betrayed me and sold me into slavery and left me for dead. He approached it through God works miracles in my life. 
Trauma will twist your thinking. And it makes a simple task completely impossible. Many sins can be traced back to trauma. We go through hurtful experiences and we all do. It means you're having a human life when hurtful things happen. The problem is we will receive a wound and we'll tell ourselves, I'm okay. I can live with this. I don't need to handle it or deal with it. God was really neither present nor absent. I'm simply here with this hurt and I'll continue to live my life. And that, presents, that prevents us from being obedient to God fully. Lots of sin comes from our inability to process trauma and bring it to God, to confess it to someone, to share with them, I'm having trouble with this, I need you to pray for me. When I say sin comes from wounds, what if I told you sin from one of the greatest men in the Bible came from a wound? Moses is one of the most regarded men in the entire Tanakh. What if I showed you that the one sin he was told, this is why you can't enter the land, you struck the rock when you were supposed to speak to it, came from a wound? to illustrate why we don't approach Hanukkah through a lens of the war and the atrocities that happened. Let's take a look at Moses. We have in, in Bamibar, Numbers chapter 20, the congregation had no water, so they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and they said, if only we had died with the death of our brothers before the Lord. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord to this desert so that we and our livestock should die there? Why have you taken us out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place for seeds or fig trees or grapevines or pomegranate trees. There's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron moved away from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and they fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and speak to the rock in their presence so that it will give forth its water. You shall bring forth water for them from the rock and give the congregation and their livestock to drink. Moshe took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moshe and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock and he said to them, now listen, you rebels, can we draw water for you from this rock? Moshe raised his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice when an abundance of water gushed forth and the congregation and their livestock drank. You might ask, where's the trauma there? Well, first off, God's instructions were not complex. It was not that hard to understand. In a nutshell, it was go to the rock, speak to the rock, get water. There wasn't much more than that. And this story bugged me as a kid because how did Moses suddenly become incapable of following simple commands? This is the guy that did detailed uh, descriptions of what the Kohanim should do in the tabernacle. This is the guy that led them out of Egypt with uh, miracles God was working through him. How did he suddenly become incapable of simple step-by-step -step instructions? Something had to happen. Well, to find out why, we're gonna back up by one verse from where we started. The entire congregation of the children of Israel arrived at the desert of Zin in the first month and the people settled in Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. The congregation had no water, so they assembled against Moses. Moshe and Aaron did not have time to even mourn their sister. Miriam was special to Moses. He owed her his life. As a baby, she hid him away and then put him in that basket. And she watched over what would happen to him. They had a special relationship. At the Exodus, there was a song of Moses and then Miriam followed it up. She was called a prophetess. 
They had a special relationship. The sages even call that rock that followed them in the wilderness, that rock that Moshe struck the first time and he was supposed to speak to it the second time but he struck it instead. What Rav Shaul says that rock was Messiah in Judaism, that rock is known as Miriam's well. That Miriam's well dried up as soon as she died. And the congregation assembled against Moses and Aaron. In verse 10, Moshe and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock. And he said to them, now listen, you rebels. Shimau na hamorim. Can we draw water for you from this rock? What was he saying? When he was talking to them, when he is living his sister's death and he cannot escape it, because every other time there was an issue with water, Miriam was there. She put him in that basket when he was a baby. She was there when they crossed the sea. She was there at the bitter waters of Marah immediately after they left the Red Sea. She was there the first time when he struck the rock. And now she's not there. So what does he say to Israel? Morim, he calls them rebels. And that word is unique. Miriam is spelled mem, resh, yud, mem. Morim is the same exact spelling. And I would submit to you it is not a coincidence that as soon as Moses loses his sister and the congregation is coming against him, that he is addressing them with his dead sister's name. You could reread verse 10 to say, now listen, Miriam, can we draw water from this rock? And it's heartbreaking. Someone as great as Moses. Entire books of the Bible are nicknamed after him. The books of Moses refers to the entire Torah. A man so great and his sister's death led him into a place of woundedness and trauma so he could not follow even simple commands. And it can be so easy when we lose someone or we experience something that we slip into bad habits, something traumatic happens and we go back into something that can't work anymore. When Miriam was around, we struck the rock. But she's gone now. The only way that story makes sense is if Moses was completely mentally disabled at that point because he was mourning his sister and he didn't have time to mourn because the congregation was coming against him. So I'll pose everyone a question. What in your life, what trauma could happen, has happened, that would turn you away from God in even small ways and this is something that we all really need to think about. What loss could I endure that would cause me to turn away from God? What would happen to me that, what would it take to happen to me? The loss of a loved one, a betrayal? Trauma has a way of taking old baggage and things we thought we had under control because you'll endure something and you'll say, no, I can handle that, I'm, I'm fine and you endure something else, and then something else, and then something really big happens. And all these things you thought were under control that had only been stacking, they dump out, amplified. And it becomes a disaster. And if you do an honest reading of the Exodus, Moses had been going through problem after problem after problem. He probably felt like no one was on his side a number of times. The number of times it says that the entire congregation was about to kill him is more than one. Russell Brand, who is an actor and comedian and he spent a number of years dealing with drug addiction, he writes, cannabis isn't a gateway drug. Alcohol isn't a gateway drug. Nicotine isn't a gateway drug. Caffeine isn't a gateway drug. Trauma is the gateway. Childhood abuse is the gateway. Molestation is the gateway. 
Neglect is the gateway. Drug abuse, violent behavior, hypersexuality, and self-harm are often symptoms, not the cause, of much bigger issues. And it almost always stems from a childhood filled with trauma, absent parents, and an abusive family. But most people are too busy laughing at the homeless and drug addicts to realize their own children could be in their shoes in 15 years. It's moving. We can get so trapped in our wounds, we don't realize where that path is going. So how do we heal from this? There's an obvious problem, but clearly Hanukkah isn't framed that way because we, we remember Hanukkah not by the horrible things that happened. We don't have an annual rereading of, of the story of Hannah and Full and her seven sons. We don't read about all the, the war and the atrocities that happened. We light candles and we eat donuts and latkes, and that's how it should be. The first step when we heal from a trauma, and I should have led with this, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a psychologist nor a psychiatrist. I am none of these things. And if you have issues, I will never turn someone away from seeking professional help. So when I offer steps, it is in a uh, pastoral sense and not at all in a professional therapy sense. Which means I can't bill you for it. <laughs> a first step is to see it as it is. Do not see it worse than it is. We are commanded in Devarim 25, you shall have a correct and honest weight. You shall have a correct and honest measure so that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. That is not just talking about grain and wheat and flour. Weigh things honestly in your life. Losing a loved one, being betrayed, losing a relationship, those are hurtful things and don't try to tell yourself that it's not. At the same point, it doesn't suddenly mean life is pointless and has no meaning. I, I have a friend who jokingly says that every time the Cowboys lose a game. <laughs> because something bad happens does not mean your entire life is over. Second, we need to get to the truth and deal with it because we so often beat around the bush. In John chapter eight, it says, so Yeshua was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Approach something seeking the truth in a situation. Whatever it is, whether you were betrayed or abused, whether you lost someone, approach it with truth. We can so often get caught up with shame. And I've heard many professionals discuss how shame can leave with a feeling of contamination. I've heard more than one person talk about abuse as a child that left them feeling contaminated for decades, thinking that they're the only one that ever happened to and that they would never have normal relationships because of it. And when you think that you're the only one who's ever gone through something, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna up this a little bit. When you think you're the only one who's ever done something wrong, it traps you in a sense of shame and it stops you from getting help. You're not the only one. Bringing a wound to God will remove the shame because he can truly purify us. As King David wrote, after the incident with Bathsheba, he will cleanse you with hyssop. He will make you white as snow. Only God can do that. And it says in Psalm 86, teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name and our hearts easily fracture when we're dealing with wounds and trauma. It separates us from God's way because of the wound. And we'll feel like we have to compensate somehow. There are so many ways where we receive a wound and we'll say, I will obey God in every way except this one. Someone hurt me here. I will obey God everywhere else. I'll even heap it on extra. I won't even use a light switch on Shabbat. But this thing over here, I was wounded. 
I was betrayed. I was stabbed in the back. I'm not going to form relationships the way I know I should. Extra obedience in other areas does not excuse you from doing what God calls us to, but we so often use that as a defense mechanism. And sadly, after the Hanukkah story, in our history, we see that happen in a lot of Judaism because we see the story pick back up in the Gospels. Another step in healing, you have to ask yourself, what is God's vision for your life? And is that also your vision? It says in Mishlei, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Your past is not your future. The traumas that have happened to you, that have traumas that have happened to us, the traumas that happened to the Jewish people throughout history are not our future and it's not your future. If you are hurt, if you were hurt, you are not a victim. If you did something to hurt someone, you are not an abuser. That is not what God has in mind for your life. If you don't believe me, take a look at King David. Take a look at the Apostle Paul. You are not the sum total of your mistakes and do not live your life as if you are. So have you really asked yourself, what is God's purpose in my life? What is his vision for me? And am I living that out? Or are you caught up in wounds of the past? One of the final steps is to ask for prayer. Rav Shul writes in Romans 15, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Yeshua Messiah and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Apostle Paul asked for prayer. Yeshua asked for prayer. Then Yeshua went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to, to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Pray with me. If the apostle Paul can ask for, for prayer, if Yeshua can say, I have a lot on my plate, I need you to pray for me, so to speak. None of us are too good to ask for prayer and there should never be any problem going to anyone and saying, I need you to pray for me. If Rav Shul can do it, if Yeshua himself was able to say, I need prayer, pray with me. And then he got upset when they fell asleep. None of us are too good because we can get trapped in this thinking of, well, I've gotten, I've gotten past that. I've, I've grown past that. I shouldn't need to ask someone's help for this. I don't need help. I'm not the kind of person who needs help. I'll do it on my own. I've watched each of my kids go through that phase. And if you're a parent, you probably watch them go through it too. I do it myself. Don't do that. Ask for prayer. Were you abused? Were you mistreated? Were you betrayed? Was there a disaster or a catastrophe? Is there anyone in the room that I haven't spoken to yet that some of this hasn't connected to? Have you lost a loved one? Do you have a traumatic childhood? At some point, something on that list will happen to everyone. If you join me in prayer for a moment, Avinu Shavat Shemayim. Lord, I ask that you would shine your light, that the things that are hidden would be exposed and dealt with. Lord, I cannot do it with my words. We cannot do it on our own strength. Only you can do it by your word, by Messiah and your spirit working in us. Lord, I ask that you would put spirits of repentance in us, that you would put a spirit of joy in us, that we would not live our lives through the woundings we have received and through the traumas, through the hurts, 
through our own mistakes, but that you would show us through it that when we rejoice, we are rejoicing over your miracles and your wonders and your salvations. Lord, I ask that you would work in the hearts of everyone here, that the woundings they have received would be revealed to them and dealt with, that you'd put a spirit of humility in each of us. Lord, that we would be able to help each other and pray for each other and with each other. Amen. We're not done. We normally pray at the end, but not today. When we heal from trauma, have you ever met someone who was really addicted to their wounds? And we've all met someone like that. I had an old friend and she since passed away. She could not escape the abortion she got. That eventually killed her too. It was a wound that chased her and she could never get away from. The most addictive thing in life isn't a drug, alcohol, or sex. It's our problems which we create, which we use to create excuses, or what for us will feel like reasons why we can't be who God wants us to be. If our problem is big enough, then we can blame our problems on that thing. We guard ourselves, we drug ourselves, or act out and do things which harm ourselves and others because of our wounds and trauma. Even in the book of Maccabees, several times when they're receiving different punishments handed down, and even in the story of Han and her seven sons, they acknowledge God is permitting this to happen right now. But we know he's in control. They never had a sense of hopelessness. They teetered a couple times. They knew God was punishing them but they also knew God was in control. When the Jewish people fought off the Greeks, it was against all odds, though the cost was enormous. By the end, everyone had been betrayed by countrymen and lost friends and family to war and to torture. Everyone who survived would be haunted by things they had seen for the rest of their lives. And when they came into the temple, having fought off the Greeks, they all probably had the same question on their minds. Despite the victory, every Jew present had a thought in their head. Was this us or was this God? Because we can do all kinds of wonderful things in our lives. And God even warned Israel going into the land, you are going to plant, you are going to harvest, you are going to do amazing things. And then you're going to think, look at what I did. So everyone had to have that in their mind. These were some amazing victories. Was this God? So why do we light candles and eat fried foods on Hanukkah? We remember the miracle of the oil because as everyone had that question on their minds, it was answered. That, it, that miracle answered the question everyone had in their heads. Was this us or was this God? It was clearly God. We celebrate the miracle of oil, Neskadol Hayasham on the dreidel. A great miracle happened there. We eat donuts, we eat latkes because we're not looking back at the horrible things that were done. We're looking at the salvation, the miracles that God brought then. We process Hanukkah through the lens, not of trial and tribulation, but of what God brought us through and the miracles that he performed. We light candles, we eat greasy foods, because we remember his goodness. We remember all the things he did for us. We don't focus on the wounds and the trauma because that is not who we are as a people. As Messiah said, let your light shine before all. Despite what has been done to you or what you have done, let your light shine before all men that they may see your deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we light a Hanukkah, we spin dreidels, we eat donuts and latkes, we sing Hanarot uh, Hallelujah, Ma'osur, Al-Hanisim, and so many other songs because Hanukkah is not about atrocity. It is about God's miracles. It is about the miracles that happened there and how God can turn lament into dancing and however bad things seem in the moment. Whatever wounds you have received, whatever traumas you're going through, your story is not over. Would Les and Darcy please come up?
Would you please join me in prayer? Avinu Shavat Shemayim. Lord, we thank you for being our God, our Lord, our King, our Maker. That no matter how bad things seem, that even when things are dark, you are with us. That you never leave us. That you never forsake us. Lord, that even when things seem impossible, you make a way. And as we celebrate Hanukkah, Father, as we celebrate the miracles that you performed for our forefathers, the amazing things that you did, Lord, I ask that we would give all glory to you. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Lord, I ask that we would have a unity in prayer that we, whatever wounds anyone here is dealing with, they would be able to realize that you have been in their life. No matter how bad things have seemed, no matter their traumas or trials, whatever wounds they have, that you are the ultimate healer. You are the perfect physician. And we look to you and we thank you. We gratefully thank you, Lord. I ask that you would bless the rest of this day and you would bless the hearts, minds, and souls of everyone here. Lord, I thank you for each and every one of them. And I ask that you would show all of us the lives you want us to lead and who you want us to be in you because you are the perfect potter and we are your clay. And you have given us all things according to riches and glory in Messiah Yeshua, your son, forever and ever. Amen. Hag Sameach. Hallelujah. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a little bit of a testimony before um, I do this song. And thank you, Rusty. So I want to tell you, many of you don't know me and you don't know anything about me. But I grew up in severe abuse. In all manners of abuse. Physical emotional, sexual, and I want you to know we serve a good, amazing God who does deliver and who does take the things that the enemy has meant for our evil and he can turn them and use them for your good. Because of the things I went through and the wonderful and amazing healings the Lord has brought me through, I'm able to minister to other people. And that is what God does. He is so good. And he loves you. And he is no respecter of persons. And you are not the dog under the table begging for bread. You are children of the living God. And he loves you. And he wants to set you free. And he's able to set you free. Hallelujah.
We're going to close with the ironic benediction. Please feel free to get under a talit if you have one near you. Invite everyone at home to do the same. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May the Lord shine his face on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, his peace. B'sham Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom. And we've got a few quick announcements. We just want to thank everyone to come out for today's Hanukkah service. And that was a, um, a blessed message. So I'm just thankful for the Lord. So first thing, we have no afternoon act, um, activities, at least no normal afternoon activities today. Because we have special, we have a special activities planned today, and the first one up is well, there's going to be an afternoon Hanukkah talent show and party. The talent show begins uh, after Oneg and the, after after two fifteen in an auditorium, and the party will begin around two thirty in the foyer. So the next slide we kind of see the layout of um, what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing um, Oneg in the factory talent show in the auditorium at 2.15. And it says 2.45 here, but I think depending on when it ends in here, then we'll go out there and everything will be set up for us. And at sundown, we will be having Havdalah and the lighting of the Hanukkahs. And we would like to make sure we have a group cleanup um, and all hands on deck because after we eat and after we have all the festivities and enjoy ourselves, there's going to be a little putting things away and getting things put back together. And I want to mention that starting next week, we're going to be having our Revelation Bible study, and that's going to be a room 220, and that'll be in the beginning of chapter one. That's next Shabbat 12, 11, 21. And finally, we have our Zadaka box back there. If you're blessed by... Um, by this ministry and by what God is doing, um, please give your tithes and offerings. you have anything else? So again, I want to invite everyone, please. We put a lot of work. The, people have put a lot of work into this talent show and into this Hanukkah party uh, and fun and games, especially for the kids, but for everybody. So I want to encourage everyone to please stay uh, this afternoon for our special Hanukkah party, uh, here, both here in the, in the auditorium and out in, in the foyer. Thank you. All right. Can everyone please stand for Kiddush? Can Brother Scott please come up? Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth and has brought forth the bread of life, Yeshua, from the earth as well. Amen. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.